We have been in the middle of a series out of the book of 2 Timothy, and so if you are uh, uh, got your Bible or your device and you want to get ahead of me, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we are going to be. Uh, today, we're walking through the book, this letter of 2 Timothy, and it's this incredible, beautiful letter, and it's actually the last letter that Paul writes it's his swan song, his, uh, uh, his final uh, communication to his protege, to Timothy, who he refers to as his son in the Lord time and time again. He's depositing his life into the next generation. And I love that we're walking through this book right now because it's all about, he writes it specifically to one person who's leading a church, but he understands that it's gonna be written and are read in all of the churches. And so it's kind of like he's writing a a specific communication to someone. Like I'm writing to Dave and I'm saying, Dave, this is what it's going to be like to lead in the church, but all the church folk are going to hear what I write about. So I'm going to write a couple times that these church folk can be crazy and they're going to hear it. And I know they're going to hear it. And so I'm going to write it specifically. And he addresses some things that are happening in culture and in the church that are so important. And ultimately he's writing to equip both Timothy to lead, but also the church to survive after he's gone because he knows his time on earth is now short and it's the end of his particular run. And, and he wants to equip the church to survive after he's gone. And so this series, we've called it Equip. And, uh, and uh, this idea of being equipped. And, and we joked a couple weeks ago as we walked into this series, you know, I joked about the fact that I don't camp. Uh, and so I, I don't know how this works, but I do know I've tried to camp without the right tools and it didn't go well, which is why I don't camp. And so if you don't have the right tools for the job, it can be really, really frustrating. If you think, you know, you, you can make fire and you can't make fire, then that's really, really frustrating. You don't have what it takes. You don't know what you need. And, and oftentimes as we're on this journey with Jesus and we're trying to live like Jesus and we're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, we can feel unequipped sometimes. What does God really expect of me? And what does it look like? And how is this supposed to work? And I'm not sure what's going on here. And so here's Paul writing to his protege to equip him. And he says some pretty important and some pretty critical things along the way. You see, Timothy's pastoring in this church called uh, in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city that comes up a lot in the scriptures in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Paul writes a letter just to the church in Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. And, and uh, you're familiar with that letter. And, and he writes to that church. As a matter of fact, um, John, uh, when he's on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to him about this church in Ephesus. It's the church that he says, oh, you've left your first love behind. You used to be on fire and passionate for me, but there's not that same fire and love. It's not the same. It's become duty and obedience and it's not rooted in love for me and flowing out of love for me. And last week, if you weren't here, we talked about kind of the origin of this church in, uh, in Ephesus. And if you wanna read how this church got started, you can read it in Acts chapter 19. Luke, the historian, tells the story of this church that explodes onto the scene in Ephesus. And Paul is there and he's sharing the gospel and there's crazy stories of, uh, of healing. And, and uh, there's this crazy story, these seven sons of Siva, Siva they try to manipulate uh, the spirit of God. It doesn't go well and they get the tar beat out of them. And then everybody realizes that that, that there's something supernatural about this Jesus. There's something special and above the natural, this message that, that Paul is sharing. And it says that all of Asia believed. Now, when I say Asia, it's confusing sometimes because when, when I say Asia, we think like China, Asia. But for them, Asia was like Asia Minor, it's Turkey. Okay, and so all of Asia believed, this whole community began to believe. And we see in, in Acts chapter 19, this incredible story of what it looks like when a city hears about Jesus. As a matter of fact, Ephesus was this, this renowned city for, um, for, for, how would I word this, um, bad stuff. Uh, a, a, Ephesus had one of the seventh wonders of the world and it was a temple that was dedicated to the goddess Artemis, okay? And Artemis was, uh, or Diana was the other name. It was like this goddess of pleasure. And the idea was this was a place where you went for pleasure. It was a place, it was a port city. And as a port city, it was filled often with sailors who had been out at sea for a while and came to port and they were looking to cut loose. And so this mixed match cosmopolitan community had a complete industry that thrived on pleasure. 
And so Paul shows up and these, these radical believers in Jesus start popping up. And, and the book of Acts chapter 19, it's amazing the story. You should read the story because what happens in this community is it becomes so committed to Jesus that the businesses that were dependent on pleasure and, and, and sin in a way that was pulling people away from God, they couldn't survive anymore. The shops that were set up for that kind of purpose started closing their doors, boarding their windows, so to speak. And as a matter of fact, it says that they got so angry, the, sh the people who were making money off of the, the sin that was in this city, they actually banded together and started a riot against the believers that were popping up and they wanted to kill them, but they had no reason to kill them. I'm telling you, when people have the courage to start telling their story about what Jesus has done in their life, it starts changing things and entire communities can change. And that's the story of Ephesus. So Timothy, who had been traveling around with Paul, was now assigned as a pastor into this community. But it's been about nine or ten-ish years since that happened. And what's happened in those nine or ten-ish years is there's been a massive swing back the other direction. This church that had, had sprung up, that was on fire out of a love for God, has gotten filled with kind of a duty-bound uh, 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 expression of relationship with God. And, and Ephesus has kind of begun to crank into this, this community that is now again known for not such good things. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't have been weird to see a billboard in Ephesus that looked maybe a little something like this. What happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. It was this kind of a sin city, right? The sailors would come in, the merchants would travel on long trips, and then they would, they would just cut loose. They're far from home and family and responsibility, and they would go to this place, and they would live kind of crazy. And so Paul's writing to this, this pastor who he's mentored in the Lord in the book of first Timothy he's writing to him all about don't let anyone look down on you because you're young and and be you be be courageous and and bold in your faith and now he's writing saying there's this culture shift that's happening and you're gonna have to stand up for what you believe in the face of a culture that doesn't agree with you so the question becomes guys in a world where anything goes how do you live a Christian life in a world where anything goes, how do you live this Christian life? How do you be a little Christ? That's what a Christian is, right? You guys know that, that Christians wasn't a phrase that, that the Jesus followers put together, right? They was, it was actually a phrase, it was like a, uh, like a mocking phrase that the Romans threw out there because they said, look at these little Christs. They're trying to be little Christs and just kind of like, and, um, you know, we, we all had this experience, these, these little groups that kind of pair off in school. And you're like, oh, those are the jocks and those are the nerds and those are the, uh, you know, the gangsters. Those are the wannabe gangsters. Those are, you know, <laughs> those are the stoners, like whatever the groups. I don't know what you call the groups anymore now. Maybe it's the, you know, the hipsters. I don't know what you call them. But uh, <laughs> whatever the groups are that are out there right now. And, uh, and what ends up happening is someone calls you by that and it starts off as like a mocking thing, but then eventually it's kind of a badge of honor. It's like, yeah, I'm with the jocks, geeks, nerds, whatever the group is, right? And that's kind of how this little Christs became a thing. And so, so in this world that's telling you everything goes, how do you stay associated as a little Christ, a little example of Christ and what does that look like? And so... The tool that we're going to talk about this week is, is a, it's kind of a weird tool to talk about. It's the tool of holiness. And Paul's not going to actually use the phrase holiness in this text, but as I read it over and over again, what he's actually describing is a life of holiness. And that's why the tool is holiness today. But here's the problem. When I say the word holiness, I'm not sure that we know what does holy even mean. And I started thinking about it and I started thinking about what does holiness mean and what is holiness? And I started thinking about when I was going to church and I was attending and I was beginning to become a follower of Jesus, I would hear this phrase all the time. Holy is the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness, holiness, holiness. And here's what I realized. Most of my Christian journey, I have no idea what that actually means. Now we sang it an awful lot. We were loaded with songs about holiness, but I had no idea what holiness actually meant. So 
was thinking about doing a little illustration for you guys, but I tried it first service and only went so-so. But I might try it one more time for you guys. I want to break out for you a worship song that I probably sang a thousand times, maybe, maybe 500 to a thousand times. And you might recognize it. Now, listen, I'm not knocking the worship song. That's not my thing. So if this is your favorite worship song from when you were growing up, I don't mean to mock the song. But what I do want you to understand is that as a young follower of Jesus, I sang these words and I didn't have any clue what these words meant. Now, I have to tell you a couple things. One, before first service, I had not sang into a microphone, I don't think, since 2001. There's a reason for that. It's not my skill set. <laughs> but I want you to just kind of go back in time with me a little bit and see if you recognize this song. You'll see in a minute why your pastor doesn't do this job. Right? But I can play two chords. Three, and that's all that's in here. Come on, you recognize it. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. And holiness is what I need. And holiness, the holiness is what you want from me. Come on, you. Right, so you sang that, right? Going to church growing up. Some of you heard it. Maybe you've never heard it before. I got to tell you, as a youth group kid in the 90s, that song was our jam. And we sang it over and over and over and over and over and over. And I lifted my hands and I belted out my voice. What's hilarious to me, and again, I'm not mocking the song, I'm just telling you, the song is called Take My Life. I didn't even know the name of the song. It's called Take My Life, which is really scary looking back that as a young follower of Jesus, the name of the song that I sang all the time was called Take My Life, and I had no idea what I was talking about, right? And so here's the problem. I had no idea what I was And you're like, oh, well, the rest of the song says Take My Life. No, it never says Take My Life in the song. It says Take My Heart, and then it says Take My Mind, and then it says, take my will, but it never says, take my, take my heart, or, or take my life. But here's the song. And again, it's holiness, holiness is what I long for, right? Holiness is what I need. So I'm thinking about this song, and I'm thinking, since I don't know what holiness is, what I'm really singing as a 16-year-old follower of Jesus, what I think holiness means is just do what God wants me to do as hard as I can. So the words that I'm saying are holiness, but what I'm actually meaning is a little something like this. Abstinence, abstinence is what I long for. And abstinence is what I need. This is what I'm singing at 16, because abstinence abstinence is what you want from me right so that's what I'm singing or behave yourself behave yourself that's what I long for behave yourself that's what I need cause behave yourself behave yourself that's what he must want from me right so I'm singing this and this is what I mean when I'm singing it don't make God mad. Don't make him mad. That's what I long for. Hope I don't make him mad because that's what I need to follow Jesus, right? So don't make him mad. Don't make him mad because that's what he wants from me. All right, that's enough. That's all I got. <laughs> I didn't see any phones out there, so. Nobody was recording that, I hope, so we're okay. If you do, I think that song's copyrighted, so you can't put... No, I just can't. I have no idea. <laughs> right? But that's what I thought because I didn't know what holiness was. And so for me, holiness just meant God wants me to behave myself. God wants me to avoid things. And that must be what holiness is. I didn't know what holiness was, yet I sang it over and over and over and over and over again. And so I love this passage because Paul is going to break apart for us what holiness actually means. What does it mean, Pastor Mike? Well, um, you know, there's all kinds of definitions, but essentially the biblical picture of holiness, it means separate. It means different from something else or set apart for. Some versions will say dedicated to. 
And while obedience is important, it's not because God needs obedience. It's because God loves me and has called me to be separate to him and that he hasn't given me a bunch of rules. That way he'll accept me. He's provided for me boundaries so that I can have a better relationship with him. So all the junk that gets between he and I and our relationship doesn't live in that space. I mean, the Bible tells me that God is holy and that I should be holy. How in the world do I do that? I mean, how do I know if I'm being holy right now? You ever walked around and just been like, yeah, today I feel holy. Like, we don't use that vocabulary. It doesn't enter into our vernacular or in our mind, but here's the scripture telling us time and time again to be holy. That holiness is a value. And we'll sing, holiness is what I long for. But we don't even know I don't know if I've ever felt particularly holy. So Paul's writing to his protege. And he's already covered that the, the, the first tool is going to be courage and not having a spirit of fear and intimidation. And then, then he's going to talk about, and you can't be ashamed of your story and the gospel and this incredible transformation that God's had. Don't let the world tell you that you have to be ashamed of, of who you are and what God's done. Don't ever bury that. Don't let that hit the back seat. Don't be embarrassed. That's our story. That's, I'm sticking to it. And he says, you, gotta, you, gotta, you can't be ashamed. And now he's going to talk about how in the world do you live in this culture, in this world that's trying to tell you that everything is okay. And yet you have a God, a father in heaven who loves you, who's trying to give you a different way to live, set apart for him. How do we live in that tension? What does it even look like? And so 2 Timothy, we pick up the letter. And Paul's writing in verse one, and he says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And we're going to come back to this before we're done. But he says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And I love that he starts talking about strength, connecting it to the grace that we get from Jesus. He doesn't say, you got to be strong in your own strength. You got to be tougher than you think you've ever been before. You got to dig down deep to your reserves of toughness and tough it out because you're the toughest of the tough. He doesn't say that at all. He says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And Paul knows about this grace. He talks about it all the time. In uh, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, when he's talking about the thorn in his flesh, when he talks about his own weaknesses, he says, I pled with God to get rid of my weaknesses. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul understands that there is this, this interdependence with, with the grace that he received from Jesus in order to be strong, that real strength comes out of real relationship with Jesus, that it's imparted. It's not developed on my own. It has a source that I access that's outside of myself. It's what Jesus has done, and I need to be in relationship with Jesus to understand that this grace is available for me. The power to live this Christian life doesn't come out of my own power. If it did, we wouldn't need any help. If we did, we would just make a decision to be holy, to be perfect. And we would be able to just do it. How's your perfection running today? Are you just crushing it? It's like, yeah. Every day at the end, you check a box. You're like, another perfect day in the books. Yes. Right? It's not possible. Since it's not possible, Paul's like, you're going to have to be strong, but that strength's going to have to come from somewhere. You want to live a holy life? You want to live separate in this culture that's trying to convince you that all of the things that, that are, are, are accessible to you are good for you? If you want to live separate from that kind of mindset, you're going to need some strength, and the access to that strength's going to come from relationship with Jesus. Ever feel like you're just in over your head, you don't have enough strength? It's a pretty good starting point. Paul felt that way. Timothy felt that way. I love this because he says, be strong, right? And if you read First and Second Timothy, about 25 times, he's gonna tell Timothy to be strong, some version of be strong. If, if, if he's writing two letters to someone and 25 times he's like, hey, bro, be strong. Be strong, 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 be strong. Hey, be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong. Ten more times. 
be strong. Then probably there was something going on in Timothy where he was feeling a little not strong. And Paul, because he knew him and had kind of almost like a, a fathering him in the, in the spirit kind of a relationship with him, was very aware, hey, Timothy, don't forget to be strong. And then don't forget that the way you get strong isn't by just digging down deep. And here's the thing. We like to get strong by digging down deep, right? I got deep reserves of strength in me. You don't know what I've been through. I've drawn that strength. And he's like, that's not how you get strong. You get strong by staying connected to Jesus, staying in relationship with Jesus. I don't think I've ever been around someone who's really struggling, who said, you know, the thing that's really going well right now is my walk with Jesus. I'm in great relationship with Jesus, but everything else is falling apart. I don't know if I've had that conversation. Like I can't manage anything else in my life, but I got this down. It probably could happen, but I don't think I've ever had it. Ever feel way over your head? Paul said, that's an okay spot to be because your strength doesn't come from you. It comes from being in relationship with Jesus. And so verse two, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, all right. So you're gonna have to be strong. That strength's gonna come from Jesus. And listen up, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. I gotta do a little corrective stuff here because um, I'm not trying to correct the scripture, but NIV translations is a little bit funky here because he says reliable men, but the word there is just mankind. Trust it to all of mankind. And we know that Paul believes that this reliable teaching comes through both men and women because he opens this letter by saying, I really am impressed with the faith that I saw in your grandmother and now I see in your mom and now I see in you. And, uh, and so he's just trying to say, listen, there's something that's happened that you've heard and there's, there's, now, there's now reliable things that you've heard me say and you're gonna have to entrust that to all of mankind because they're gonna have to teach other people. And I'm gonna make this a little uncomfortable for some of you in a, in a, for a moment here, but I gotta be honest with you. There is a deceptive thing that creeps into church world and it's because of this microphone and where I stand up here. And that deceptive thing is that I am the teacher of all the things and that I'm the expert of all the things. And I gotta be honest with you. I'm not an expert in very many things. Certainly not an expert in guitar and singing, as you saw. I'm not an expert in a lot of things. There's really a very small few things that I'm pretty competent at. I don't know if I'm an expert really at anything, but there's this kind of myth because of the way we do church that, that, that I come up here and share more often than, than anyone else. And so I must be the, the authority on everything. And Paul is saying, you can't function as a church if, if you don't entrust the message of what God's done to reliable men and women who then go around and share that and teach that with everyone else. And can I just be, honest with you for a minute here, church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a teacher. You may not have the gift of teaching. You may not ever want to come up here and talk in the microphone in front. Some of you really do and shouldn't, but, uh, and some of you should, and some of you should, right? Both things are true. It's just like American Idol, right? Everyone thinks that they're great until someone's, in, but that's, that's a whole other thing. But, but some have the gift of teaching and some don't. But all of us are called to teach others because you've been through some stuff in your life that you're now an expert at that I'm not an expert at. And you sharing that story and giving that testimony and, and, and developing in someone else hope and life because of what you've been through is how this thing is supposed to work. Let me give you an example. I talk about alcoholism a lot because I grew up in an alcoholic family. I'm an expert at living with an alcoholic, but you know what I'm not an expert in? Overcoming alcoholism. Because I wasn't an alcoholic. Last time I got drunk, I was 13. My cousins thought it would be funny. And I didn't know mostly what was going on. Other than I wanted to please them. So I don't know what it's like to overcome alcoholism personally. I don't know what it's like to, to, to depend on Jesus and, and work the program from that end and, and get freed from that addiction. I don't have that. I'm not an expert, but some of you in this room are. Some of you in this room are experts. And now you've been entrusted with that power and authority of what God's taken you through and the reliable things that you've learned and, and, and received. And you've been entrusted now to impart that beyond yourself. You're now an expert, a teacher. Right? 
I grew up in a, in a, in a little bit of an, a, a, some abuse in, in the home, but it wasn't the kind of abuse that some of you guys have been through. And I'm not an expert in it. And I can tell you what I've read and what I've heard and who I've talked to and what I've seen them experience and how God's brought freedom to them. But for some of you, that's your story. And you're an expert and you come through some stuff and you've been through it. And God's like, that's been redeemed in you. And you can share that story and give life and bring healing and teach. And it's now in you. That's why that if you think this is the most important thing we do as a church, that's not true. The most important thing we do in a church happens when we leave this place, when we get together and look at one another and do life in community and share our story and, and let iron sharpen iron. That's the most important thing we do. And so if that's not happening, this is, this is Paul saying that has to happen. It has to be depart, imparted, departed into others. And then they have to give that away and teach others. Sometimes it's not even negative things. Sometimes it's positive things. I've never been responsible to manage a lot of personal wealth. I'm not an expert. You want to manage like this much wealth? I'm your guy. Right? I'll talk you through that. But I've never been responsible. Some of you have had to manage and live with integrity when there's been opportunity to, to, to lie or cheat or be greedy or deal with things. You've had to manage that and you become experts And how do I honor God and live with integrity with my resource? I, I can go on and on and on. And Paul's saying, listen, you gotta, you gotta have reliable people who teach and are qualified and are willing to teach others. The body, the family of God needs your expertise. Pastor, I'm not an expert. I've just been through some stuff. Welcome to being an expert in some stuff. That's why we need to be in community with each other. That's why we talk so much about depositing what God's given to us into the next generation. Verse three, he says, and endure hardship with us like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Paul. That's not helpful. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus? How about avoid hardship? That would be much better. Avoid hardship like a clever soldier of Christ Jesus, right? But we live in a culture, can I just be real? We live in a culture where our biggest strategy is always to avoid hardship. The moment we see hardship coming, it's anything we can do to avoid that hardship. It's whatever we can do to try to get out of it and avoid it and deal with it. If we see conflict or we see someone that, that, that looks like it's going to uh, cause us pain, we just want to fix it. Fix every hardship like a good tinkerer for Christ. That's not what it says. It doesn't say fix everything. Ooh, that's hard for some of us to hear. I could deal with, like, if I'm not going to avoid, at least let me fix everything. But he's talking to Timothy, the leader of this church, and he's talking to this body of believers. And he's like, you're going to have to endure some hardship. What if it's possible that some of the difficult things that we're going through, God wants to use those to develop experts and develop your character as part of your story? And right now it's difficult, and right now it's hard. And if you try to avoid it or you try to fix it, you might create more problems than you ever could have been through. What if that's the story God's taking on? You know, that's what happens in the scriptures all the time, right? We don't get to just fix everything. What if Joseph was like, listen, Potiphar, your wife, we got to talk. She keeps coming on to me and we got to fix her. Let's have an intervention. Like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to line up all these people. I'm going to build my case and we're going to, he didn't, he didn't get to fix that. He just had to endure this hardship. And because he didn't fix it, but he endured it, he ended up in prison for something he didn't even do. But if he didn't go to prison and endure it, he wouldn't have been positioned to eventually be number two in the entire nation and save his entire family from starving. Sometimes enduring hardship is part of the process, guys. Here's the problem. In Western Christianity, I'll say that. Western Christianity, we don't believe that we're supposed to endure hardship. We think if there's hardship, then we've done something wrong or we've missed God. 
Something must be off because things aren't going well right now. But isn't it possible that God would use some of that hardship? If we don't believe we're supposed to endure any hardship, listen, because we don't believe we're supposed to endure hardship, that's the primary reason that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate everywhere else. Because we don't believe we're supposed to endure anything. Right? It's, it's the reason why so many families have ripped apart and fallen apart. It's the reason why, uh, I'm just, let me be careful. I'm going to stop. It's the reason a lot of stuff looks like the world inside the church. Doesn't look any different. Because we don't think we should ever endure any hardship. I can't give. I can't serve. That'd be hard. Busy right now. Things are tight. Just saying. He says, endure hardship with us. We just don't do hardship well. Here's the thing. We think we're doing okay because we forgot that we're in a war. This soldier metaphor is important. We have forgot as a church, we have forgotten that we're in a war and that we have an enemy who hates our guts. An enemy that Peter described as a roaring lion who was, who was looking for whom he could devour. We forgot that we're in a battle. And listen, I'm not trying to doom and gloom, you guys. I'm just trying to give you some reality from Paul's words. He's like, you're like a good soldier. Why? Because we're in a fight and we're in a battle and we have an enemy that wants to take us out. And you're like, well, I'm winning, right? These guys, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to Ephesus, Vegas and partying like I don't have any consequences. I'm doing pretty good. And, and listen, the enemy would love for you to do that, but he doesn't need you to do that. He just needs you to forget that you're in a fight and believe that nothing bad should ever happen to you. And if he can get you to forget that you're in a fight and believe that nothing bad can ever happen to you, then he can get you to make your whole life about making sure that everything for you is okay. And then he's completely made you ineffective. And your whole life is about making yourself kind of the idol of your life. But we're in a fight. We're in a battle. If he can get you to live your life for yourself, take your time, your talent, your treasure, and invest them in things that will perish, he's winning the war. You're not even in the fight. Verse four, he says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. He's about to use three incredible illustrations. And this is a picture of holiness that we've never kind of unpackaged as holiness before. He's gonna say, this is, these are three pictures of what it looks like to align yourself with God. If you're a follower of God, now listen, if you're here today and you're like, I'm just checking out this God thing. This is gonna be pretty tough stuff. I want you to feel like breathe a little bit. You're not in a war yet, right? But you should hear, this is what we believe. We are in a battle, we're in a war. And there's an enemy out there and he wants to take us out. And so Paul says, let me give you three examples of what it looks like to be in this relationship with God, to be pursuing God, to be living a holy life. And the first one he says is no one serving as a soldier gets entangled with civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now listen, we're close to the base and I, I recognize there are many of you here who have either served or related to someone who serves or are serving currently right now and thank you for your service and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not ever going to make any jokes about that but I just want to talk about this, how absurd it would be to be enlisted in a military endeavor as a soldier and not give a rip what your commanding officer has to say. Now some of you are in positions of command and you're like, I know, Right? You're dealing with that on a day-to-day basis. I'm sorry. But Paul's metaphor, you got to remember, Paul and Timothy grew up in Roman-occupied Palestine. And there were soldiers. And you didn't mess with those soldiers. And those soldiers were disciplined. And whatever their commanding officer said, they did. To the point of death. And it was absolutely absurd for them in their context, in their culture, to imagine a world where a soldier would be ordered into the battlefield and say, nah, bro, I'm a, I got a coffee date tomorrow over here at Starbucks, and so I'm not going to go ahead and I'm not going to ship out with you guys today. And Paul's like, that's an absurd illustration, right? The absurdity of that, of, of I'm just gonna hang out. I know I enlisted, but I'm really enjoying, you know, I'm over here, we're eating a lot of falafel and, and, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not gonna go, if I go out there, I gotta eat rations and stuff. So I'm gonna hang out over here and I'm not gonna go with you. 
Or how about it's get a little bit more intense. We're in a foxhole and there's a battle and we need to take the next hill. And the, and the commanding officer says, let's go, let's go. It's time, it's time. And you're like, dude, it's comfy down here and no one's shooting at me. And you don't go. The absurdity of that to Paul was like, there's just no way. He says, but that's what it's like to be following God and in a battle. And our commanding officer is Jesus. And he's given us marching orders. And we look at the marching orders and we're like, nah. And we flip through and we're like, oh, he promises he'll never leave me and forsake me. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that order. Oh, over here it says, my body is a temple for the Lord. Don't tell me what to do with my body. No, I'm going to stay over here. You don't have any authority over my body. And we pick and choose what orders we think we should follow. And our commanding officer's looking at us like, that's not how you stay in this army. That's not what it looks like to be assigned as a soldier. So there's this tension. Paul's saying, if you're not a soldier, why follow the orders? But if you are, if you're in the fight, if you're following Jesus, then following orders is part of the deal. And we don't get to ignore the words or pick and choose. Paul understood that soldiers needed to be ready to act, ready to fight. He's been, he's been operating like a good soldier. They've been beating him. They've been in, uh, uh, imprisoning him. He's been dealing with all this moving forward. He says, I proudly bear the marks of Christ on my flesh. That means they flogged him. They've whipped him. And he's like, I'm doing this because I'm on orders. And I'm following what God's called me to do. And it costs me something. Verse five, second illustration. He goes, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. I love this one. Let me state it another way for you. You can't win if you don't play by the rules. Now, I was coaching eight-year-old Little League Baseball this year. And uh, I got roped into it. it just, the season just ended last week. Thank you, Jesus. It's been awesome. I've learned a lot. Like most eight-year-olds don't know the baseball rules. <laughs> they just don't know. So the first few games of the season, I mean, we're talking, I had a lot of kids that didn't ever even caught a ball before. Like we're just figuring it out. Like they don't know where the positions are. We're just learning, right? We're learning. And we're playing some games and we're getting whomped early on. Now we came back strong second half of the season. So, you know. It is what it is. But we got whomped for the first half of the season. Like, when I say whomped, there's a five-run cap per inning, and it would be like five runs, zero runs. Five runs, zero runs. Five runs, zero runs. Time limit, game over, okay? That's what was happening to us the first couple of games. And the game would end, and three or four kids would run up to me and go, did we win? And I'm like, are you serious? Do you understand the rules of the game at all? You have to run all the way around and score a point for us to win. And there was no sense of that on some of these kids. And so it was hilarious. But, but that's what Paul's saying. He's like, you can't win if you don't understand and play and participate by the rules. And he says, your, your relationship with God, this journey that you're on, the way you live for God, set apart, you have to think in terms of an athlete who's trying to win. And you can't win if you don't play by the rules. And it's kind of like, you know, this is a funny picture, but this is what I was thinking about. It's, uh, you know, I lived in Eugene, Springfield, Eugene area, which is like track town or whatever, uh, USA. And so there's a lot of track events. And, it, and, and, you know, the four by 100, this great event where, you know, everybody's running and they're passing the baton. And it'd be like, if you were running, right? The first guy runs and he hands the baton to the second guy and the second guy's running and he realizes he's behind. So he's like, you know what? Boom, he cuts left and just cuts across the grass, right? And he cuts through the grass because he sees the tape and he just runs straight to the tape and takes the baton, whack, breaks the tape. And he's like, we win. What are you talking about? I broke the tape first. You guys didn't even have to run. I got this. That would be absurd, right? Because you can't win the race unless you play according to the rules, People who compete and don't play by the rules, they either, come on now, they either get a, 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 an automatic loss or an asterisk, right? You play and you don't play by the rules, they do things like they ban you for 80 games and say you can't participate in the postseason. Too soon? <laughs> Too soon? Where's my Mariner fans at? 
It's painful, right? And then you, your records go with an asterisk nest to them. And they say, yeah, that guy played, but he didn't play by the rules. It's okay, all my heroes from the A's got asterisks, so it's fine. <laughs> Not Griffey. Come on, Griffey. Right? But they put an asterisk by your name. And Paul's saying, there's a lot of people who are running the race, but they're not playing by the rules, and we all see it. And they're not running by the way to get the prize. And even though they may finish the race, everyone kind of knows there's an asterisk. They didn't really run by the rules. Paul's saying, listen, those of you who are trying to figure out how we're going to live this, there's rules. Now, the rules can, can be overwhelming to think about because what are all the rules, Pastor Mike? And we can unpack some of that. You know, it's hilarious, not hilarious, just um, the Holy Spirit is ironic. Is uh, Last week, we were planning the services for all of 2019. And so I'm, I'm now fleshed out in kind of what the Holy Spirit's talking to us about for 2019. I'm really excited about that. But one of the series that we're going to do, I don't have a cool name for it. Right now, it's just kind of subtitled, The Rules. And it's just, what are the actual things that the scriptures really expect for the followers of Jesus to be? But Paul's saying, I've been breaking this down for you and you have access to the rules so you can read them, live them. However, if you ignore them, you will not win the prize. That's how that works. It's a funny thing to live in this culture that idolizes athletes the way that we idolize athletes. We idolize athletes really funny. I heard a, uh, a guy say this one time and it stuck with me. He's like, we idolize athletes in this weird way. Something happens in the world and we put a microphone in front of them and we're like, what are your thoughts? It's like, why do I care what this guy's thoughts are about this unrelated to their field of expertise issue, right? We don't, we don't care. Like, we just, you know, hey, you know, there was an earthquake in Haiti. LeBron, what do you think about that? It's like, what is the connection to idolize these athletes and, 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 and lift them up onto pedestals and ask them about things that have nothing to do with, you know, it doesn't mean he might not have something good to say, but it's just, why did we idolize them that way? But we don't idolize them for how they got to be great athletes. We don't go, you know what? LeBron's workout routine. That's amazing, the, the energy he puts in to keep his body in shape. We don't idolize that, right? Instead, a bunch of overweight guys like me sit and watch the game, and we're like, oh, he quit on them. And we're all judging. Like, we idolize them all weird. It's bizarre. We're like, oh, he could have ran harder. He could have done this. And from the couch with our controller, we're pausing and throwing chips into our mouth and talking smack about him. But then he talks about some other event, and we're like, oh, what is LeBron's thoughts on this issue? We idolize the wrong, the wrong thing. The thing that's actually respectable about them coming to the top of their field, we don't even pay attention to the right thing. The third story he tells, our third illustration he gives, he says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. What a powerful statement. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, we don't farm like we used to farm, um, you know, we don't have a lot of family farms in the church, I don't think. Maybe there's a couple. But here's the thing about farming. You work really, really hard, and then there's like nothing to show for it for a long time. And then there's something to show for it, and it's amazing, right? And so it's this picture of you oftentimes are going to work really hard, and then for a long season, you're not going to see any of the fruit of that but you will see the fruit of that someday because you put the work in. And Paul's saying, when you work hard, you may not see any reward for a season. And that's gonna be hard. But understand, when that reward comes, you're first in line. God's gonna take care of you. And here's Paul who's worked his whole life in ministry and they've beaten him. They've tortured him. He's been shipwrecked. He's been thrown rocks at. He's in prison and he's about to die. And he's saying, but I can see the reward coming. It's not even on this side of heaven, but I'm going to get there first. It's going to be awesome. And he's saying the hardworking farmer should get the first take at it. Holiness is about working under God's command by God's rules until we receive the reward God's prepared for us. He closes his thoughts, verse 7. He says, reflect on what I'm saying, and the Lord will give you insight into all this. That's what we're doing right now. He's like, think about these three pictures that I'm giving you about what it means to be on team Jesus. Think about these insights. And then he goes, and remember Jesus Christ. He's like, don't forget. He started the conversation by saying, you're gonna get power 
because of the grace that's in Jesus. And then he says, you're gonna have to work really hard, but remember that it's about Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what this whole thing is. Who was raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Listen to this, but God's word is not chained. He's literally writing a letter that's gonna get out. He's like, the word's not chained. But even bigger than that, he's saying, you may experience some things that are uncomfortable, but your courageousness, your shamelessness in sharing that story, it's still gonna be powerful. They can't chain the message. They can chain up the messenger, but they can't chain the message. Our hope is in Jesus. Remember last week we talked about if, uh, if a group of people following Jesus get over the whole death thing because we realize that death doesn't have any, it's not the end. If we get over that whole fear, there's literally nothing that can stop us from changing the world. That's why Paul was so difficult for them to deal with. Remember that? Because he's like, hey, if you kill me, that's awesome. I get to depart and be with Christ. That's the thing I've been longing for. And he's like, oh, if you let me go, then I get to tell more people about you and about Jesus. And that's awesome. I get to do that. If you keep me in prison, I'll just get all the guards saved. He was like, you can't, you can't muzzle that, that shameless approach to faith. And he's like, the word of God just is not chained. I'm running out of time. I'm going to skip ahead. I want to just give you three keys to living holy. Three keys based on this whole conversation and then. We're gonna land the plane here. Three keys to living holy. The first one is simply this. You gotta realize you're in a battle. If we don't wake up and realize that this is, we're in a fight, if we think it's all about just how can we live our, our come on now, our best life now or whatever, <laughs> right? I don't, I'm not trying to mock things. I'm just trying to like, if, if it's all about us and we don't realize we're in a fight, we've just missed it. We've just missed it. That's not the whole thing. We're in a fight. And if we don't wake up and recognize that, then we won't fight back. We won't behave like soldiers. We won't have an attitude that says we have to please our commanding officer. We won't do it. We got to realize we're in a battle. The second thing is this, just don't get caught in the trap. Don't get caught in the trap. Don't take the easy way out. Don't avoid the rules. Don't steroid up. Come on now. Don't cut across the field. Don't avoid going through the process. Compete like an athlete to win the prize. There is a trap out there telling you to shortcut it, telling you you don't have to put in the time. You don't have to put in the work. Now listen, that energy is not coming from you. We talked about that. It's not about your performing your way into heaven at all. It's the strength that comes from Jesus for the fight that we're in while we're here. So don't get caught in the trap. The enemy's been having the same strategy since Genesis 3. Did God really say you couldn't do that? Did God really say not to bite that fruit? Did God really say not to go do whatever the thing is that you're about to go do that you know God said you're not supposed to do? And you're like, don't get caught in the trap. And the last one, Paul says, remember Jesus. He's our example. The old WWJD rule still applies, all right? You know, we, we were all in on WWJD until, honestly, till the athletes started wearing them. And then we're like, oh, if Iverson's wearing it, then we can't, you know, we can't, we can't use that anymore. But what would Jesus do? The idea that we remember Jesus and we recognize he's our example. There's a lie that says we shouldn't experience any hardship. Did Jesus experience some hardship? Yes. There's a lie that says we got to take everything we can and give nothing back. Did Jesus take everything and give nothing? No. Like we got to, he's our example. You want to live holy and align with God? Man, remember you're in a fight. Don't get caught in, in, the, in, the, in the battle of, of trying to make exceptions and get out of it. Just remember Jesus and it only works if you have a relationship with him. And so Paul says, never stop fighting the battle, never stop competing for the crown and keep on planting the crops even if you don't see the reward right away because the reward is coming. Paul says, you then my son be strong in that grace that's in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 2, 1. He says, you gotta be strong in that grace. So here's how we're gonna close. I'm gonna invite you to stand. And we're going to close a little differently than, than we've closed in the past. And so um, for some of you, this might be a, a little awkward. I hope it's not uh, too awkward for you. But uh, 
We've got communion up here, and communion is this amazing thing where we remember. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul just said, remember Jesus. Our gospel story, our power, our authority is about remembering Jesus, his life, his model. And here's what I'm just thinking. I think for some of us, we've been fighting the fight, and God just wants to say, you know what? Take a deep breath today and just remember me. Remember that I'm your source of strength. Remember that I'm your source of grace. Remember that you may endure some hardship like a good soldier, but that's gonna give you strength and power and authority. It's gonna, it's gonna refine its work in you and you're gonna be someone who can teach and have authority because of that. But going through the process is gonna be part of it. Remember you're in a fight. And even though sometimes you, come on, we're stubborn and we don't wanna take orders, that, that sometimes we gotta take some orders. Remember that. Remember that we're competing. We're competing to win the prize. And so we got to know the rules and put the work in to win. Paul's like, man, I want to win. Why? Because we're in the people business. And and us winning means more people coming to heaven, more people knowing. He goes on to say, uh, you know, I, I didn't get there, but he talks about for the sake of the elect. Verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus, the eternal glory. He's like, all of this energy and work and effort is so that people will know about Jesus. And it's worth it because of that. So remember Jesus, charge your batteries, get ready for the fight. And so we're gonna take communion and here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna worship together. And I just wanna invite you when you're ready, come on down and just take the elements. You can take the juice and take the bread. You can... Take them right here. It might bog down the line. Just take them with you. Kind of go back to your seat and worship and then take them as you're ready to take them. Uh, Listen, communion, you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to remember with us today, I wanna invite you to do that. We're gonna do that. We're gonna sing this song together and I'll pray and I'll let us go. So Jesus, in this moment, we just wanna remember that you're our source for the fight that sometimes we go through difficult times, but you use those times. Get us out of we have to fix everything and avoid every tension mode and get us into we wanna live like Jesus so that people who don't know you can know you. Give us the courage to live like that, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.